Church, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 21. Leviticus 21. If you are new or visiting with us and you don't know me, my name is Alex Culpepper. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, our normal pattern on Sunday morning is that we work through the Bible together. Uh, and so if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have also printed our passage for this morning out inside the bulletin. So if you got a bulletin when you came in, uh, the passage is there as well and you can work through it with us there. So I have, I've talked before about this idea that familiarity with something can breed uh, contempt or, or at the very least boredom with it, right? Like it, the more that you are familiar with something, the less you understand how significant that thing is. And so one of the things that I've used to talk about this, I, I grew up on the Mississippi River. Uh, I could see the river, like from the picture window in my kitchen, I could sit down and eat my dinner and look out the window and see the Mississippi River right there. I mean, it was just amazing that I got to do this, but I did not appreciate the work of nature that was literally right outside of my home, the work of God that he had done. I just didn't appreciate it, right? It's the biggest river in the United States. It divides the United States from east to west, right? It is the dividing line. It holds so much history. Like you think of like, uh, like Mark Twain, his whole life was built basically growing up on the Mississippi River and going up and down the Mississippi River and daydreaming on the Mississippi River. I don't know if you know who this is, but Antonin Dvorak, uh, uh, he was a composer in the 18th century. He wrote uh, this symphony called the New World Symphony. And the place that he wrote that symphony, he was uh, sitting like right next in this place, right next to the Mississippi River as he was looking out over the river. It inspired him to write this most amazing work of music that he had ever written. And so, um, you know, on top of that, you have wildlife, like there are bald eagles all over the Mississippi River. I, uh, people come to a location that is literally like right next to my house from all over the country so that they can go and photograph the eagles and, and, and watch the eagles as they come by. And I was just kind of like, meh. Like big deal, you know? I was very used to it. I, I, like, it's just the place where I grew up. But now, when I go back, now that I've not lived there for a long time, right? When I go back, I'm amazed by the river. In fact, I will, uh, I'll take our family on a longer route to get to my parents' house so that we get to drive along the river as we go there, right? I'm struck by the fact that I grew up next to it, that I watched the sun set over the river, that it freezes in the winter and you can literally watch the eagles go and fish in it. Like I see all of this stuff now, but I did not notice it when I was growing up. I didn't give it the place that it deserved in my recognition because I didn't, I didn't realize how unusual it was, right? I didn't realize how outside of the realm of regular human experience that this gift was. So, so the same thing happens with us and God, right? We become familiar with the idea of God in a way that we could actually get bored with the truth that God is with us, right? That, that 
God loves us, that God wants relationship with us, that God would forgive us, and that he would welcome us. And our boredom with God is not a God problem. It's an us problem. It has something to do with our perspective. There's something wrong with our perspective that when we hear about the things of God, we go, meh, you know? And so along those lines, I kind of want to confront that reality. Leviticus 21 sort of forces us to confront that reality this morning. So along those lines, I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit that he would do a work in us to help us recognize the greatness of our God this morning. So would you pray with me? Lord, as we look to your word and as we are recognizing um, something warped in our own perspective about how we can so easily be used to you and familiar with you, that when we hear these significant truths about who you are, that they kind of just don't do anything to us. And Holy Spirit, we are asking, I am asking for nothing but your power this morning to reveal to our hearts how significant you are. Lord, I could speak words and I could work in my flesh to try to impress, but Holy Spirit, I know it is only by your spirit that hearts are convinced of how wonderful you are. So we confess our reliance upon you this morning and we look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're continuing a series called Not of This World. We have a couple more weeks in this series, and then we are, uh, we're going to be digging into Advent. Uh, and so I'm very excited for that Advent series. When we get back in January, we're going to be doing a series on uh, discerning false teachers and false teaching. I'm also very excited about that. And then, uh, and then we are going to finish Leviticus. After that, we're going to come back and do a series looking at the feasts in Leviticus. So just so you have an awareness of what we're going and where we're, what we're doing, uh, I just wanted to make you aware of that. But we're in this series called Not of This World. We're looking at how God intends his people that he's sending to this special land that he has promised to them, how he intends his people to be different from the world around them, right? And so every week I, we've reminded ourselves, God told his people, you will be holy like I am holy. You will be otherworldly. You will live differently in this world. You will be set apart. And so we've defined holiness, but just so you remember that definition, holiness is God's call upon his people to display an otherworldly way of life. Holiness is God's call upon his people to display an otherworldly way of life. We keep looking at this. He calls us to do this, so that we can remind each other that God is unusual, right? That, that it is an anomaly in human experience that God would draw near to us, right? He is so far outside of our experience. He is far greater than anything that we could simply experience in this world. He's better than whatever our attention is captivated by. And the whole point of us taking on this adoption of holiness is that we could reveal to others how unusual and significant he is, right? All of this talk about holiness is about helping us recognize that God is far different than what we're used to. And that's the idea that we're going to explore. So Leviticus 21.1 says this, verse 1. 
The Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she has no husband. So this introduces us to the idea. It's talking, it's an address directly to the priests. This is commands that the priests themselves, those who facilitate God's worship in his sanctuary, that they have to follow. And it's essentially telling us that the priests, they can't do the things that everybody else does. They have a different standard that's being applied to them. Certain activities are off limits for them. Priests have more rigid boundaries about how they are to operate in the world. And so one of those boundaries, so we, we looked at this uh, several weeks ago, about how if you go near dead things, you become unclean. Right? And it was not sinful to be unclean, it was just unclean to be unclean. But God is looking at the priests and saying, for the priests, it is sinful for them to draw near to dead things. Right? For the priests, it is inappropriate. There are just a few circumstances in which they are allowed to care for the dead among them. Their closest relatives, and only their closest relatives can they do this for. Everybody else can do it for anybody that they need to help, but the priests have rigid boundaries around this. And that, that's getting at this idea, right, that if, you're get, if you get too close to death, God is saying you need to be clean before you come into my house, right? That's what uncleanness was. Uncleanness said uh, you can't come and bring your sacrifices and draw near to the place where I have put my presence because this is my house, right? You can't come near to me if you're unclean. But what is the job of a priest? All the time, the priest is in God's house. That's his job. His job is to facilitate worship. He is always there at God's house, always handling holy things. Right? In fact, the priest went through an entire ceremony where he had blood sprinkled on him uh, to indicate that his sin was being atoned for, that he was being covered over by God, that he was being forgiven and that he was indeed he had oil poured over him in that say to say that he was being set apart for a special purpose like this was his new employee orientation right you step into this role God sets him up in front of the people and says hey this priest has a special purpose and here God is saying you know what it might not be sin for most people to become unclean but in many cases it is sin for my priests to be unclean. So why? Why is that? Well, Leviticus 21.4, it says this. It says, He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane itself. So, so reading here kind of makes it harder under, to, uh, to understand, but a cleaner reading uh, might be like this. Like, he must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage. So it's carrying through the same idea of, uh, of caring for the dead among them. And it's essentially saying he can't be responsible for his wife's family when they pass away. He can only be responsible for his closest relatives. But I want to focus us in on the why. The why. Because he must, in general, avoid contact with any kind of dead thing. Because if he, if he doesn't avoid that contact, God says he will profane. 
himself. Now, we need to clarify that word. Some of you, if you have different translations than what we're working with up here, you may even have in your translation the word defile. Right? And so uh, those two words, they give us the idea that something is becoming dirty or becoming gross or, or, or something along those lines. But that actually misunderstands the intent of the word. Right? The word profane is this. Profane is to take something holy and to make it common. To take something that is holy and make it common. So over time, we have come to understand this word in, taking, in terms of taking a normal part of life and making it worse or making it dirtier than normal experience. But the word is literally about taking something that is meant to operate on a different plane of existence and making that thing usual, making that thing normal, making that thing common. So I just want to ask the question, because we're going to process this a little bit. God is calling things holy that were not previously holy, right? There, there, there's like this whole world that is just full of common human experience and God has taken some things out of that common experience and lifted it up to a higher level that he calls holy. So I want to talk about how does something become holy? And the first thing that happens is that God attaches his name to it. See, before God showed up in human history, the world was broken by sinful people. Sinful people inhabited it. We warred against each other. Like the, and, and common experience was brokenness. Right? That's just what existed. And then God showed up in human history and said, I have pick, chosen this special people for myself, and I am attaching my name to this special people. In fact, when he was going to save his people out of Israel, Moses asks him, you know, people are going to want to know your name when I tell them that you are rescuing them. And so what should I tell them? And he gave Moses his name to give to the people. He says, I am that I am. Yahweh is the, the word that we use to kind of transliterate that. I am the Lord, right? I am your God. This is my name, Yahweh. And so, uh, so he attaches his name to his people. And after he attaches his name to his people, that's when he starts calling them his holy people. Right? He's now kind of elevated their status beyond normal human experience. So that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that, that happens to make something holy is that God sets it apart by his word. Right? He issues a command about certain things, and by issuing that command about certain things, he is able to change the status of those things in order that they could be elevated to a different level of existence. And that's how powerful his word is. He, in the beginning, there was nothing, and God spoke, and creation came about. Right? His word made something out of nothing. That's how powerful his word is. So he is elevating something out of the realm of the common and into the realm of the holy by using his word. And the third way that, that God, something becomes holy is that God purifies it through a process. So, so God's name is the only thing that ever entered into human history. 
being pristine, right? And so, so uh, human history was in general unclean, and then God sent his name in, and it was the first thing that was holy. And so then he, he says, by this name, I'm going to give you instruction. I can't, like, I can't just declare something that was formerly not holy to now be holy, but you are going to have to go through a process so that you understand how significant it is to move something from the realm of the common into the realm of the holy. And so what does he do? Well, he calls priests to himself and he sends them through an eight-day process of ordination where they are making sacrifices and having blood sprinkled on them and having blood put on their right earlobe and on their right hand and on their right foot, right? They, like, and they have oil poured over them. And all of this is to signify to Israel, I can't just take something that is in this category and move it to this category. You have to see through a process that something is required to move something from the realm of the common into the realm of the holy. So God, he takes common things and he lifts them up out of their common experience and puts them on a different plane. And he's saying, you know, if I've lifted these priests of mine up, they now exist for a special purpose. Right? They exist to point to me. If I am holy and nothing else is holy, and my name is holy and nothing else is holy, and now I'm taking things out of the realm of the common and lifting them up to holy, those things now exist to point to the other, only other thing in all of creation that can be called holy, my name. They exist to tell a story about who I am. That's what these priests are for. So guess what? You don't get to reach up and grab those priests and pull them back down into the level of the common, right? They get to stay up in this category called holy. You need to keep them in their place. So God has designated them for a special purpose, and he's saying, don't disrupt your special purpose, priests. Don't disrupt your special purpose by doing what normal priests in normal religions do. You are going to do something different, and verse 5 tells us more about that. They shall not make bald patches on their heads. I'm in trouble. Uh, okay. <laughs> nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. So um, religious mystics or priests, the way, one of the significant ways that they would distinguish themselves as being in the role of a person attached to spiritual power, so to speak, is that they would do unique things with their hair and they would do unique things with their beard in order to indicate, and they would even practice, make practices of cutting their own body to make various kinds of symbols in order to indicate and both um, like draw nearer to spiritual power. These are the things that they did to set themselves apart, to say, hey, we are those who know how to manipulate and use spiritual power, come to us. And God is instilling commands against these things so that his priests don't adopt the same practices and confuse the nations. God's saying, I want my priests to be different than the priests of the nations. They're going to do different things so that people understand that I am not common, that I am holy. So verse 6, They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, not make it common, 
for they offer the Lord's food offerings. Whose who's offerings? Oh, the food offerings that God has attached his name to, the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. God is calling them to be abnormal priests. Right? He says, these priests represent me. And I can't have other nations thinking that I'm like every other God. I'm holy. I am otherworldly, and my priests should be like I am. So verse 7. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Verse 8. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, I the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. So it was not uncommon for pagan priests to make their wives temple prostitutes it, or to take wives for themselves who were already prostitutes in order to employ them in the temple. That was very common for, for pagan priests to practice. So all of these things, like taking uh, a prostitute as a wife, right, and, you know, and ensuring then that she would be faithful to you. All of these different kinds of people that you can marry, all of these things are, are things that a normal Israelite would be allowed to do. Right? A normal Israelite would be allowed to do these things, but God is prohibiting priests from doing these things because God says to do so would be to draw too close to common worldly experience. So verse 9, and the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Now, before you protest, uh, it's not a great way to start when we're burning people with fire. Uh, before you protest, so these were God's commands in the old covenant. Since Jesus came, we're in a new covenant, and it would be egregious in that new covenant to burn anyone with fire. Now, we go, oh yeah, that's right. People who claimed the name of Christ not many years ago, not 200, 300, 400 years ago, made practice of burning people for the things that they had done wrong, right? This is not something that we are called to do. So I, I, don't, I don't think that you're going to question that, but I'm just clarifying, right? We're in a new covenant these are not the things that we do in that new covenant. In this covenant, what we do is that we call people to repentance and we extend forgiveness. That's our practice. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, before you protest, like, why, is, why are people burning the priest's daughter? Like, why is it the daughter that's getting called out? Remember that the first children of a priest to be burned with fire were Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons because they had offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, right? And people didn't burn Nadab and Abihu with fire. It says God lashed out against them from inside the tabernacle because of the egregious thing that they had done in his holy space. The third thing to remember, we look at this and it's giving us instruction about the daughters of the priests. And some of us might say, well, why isn't there instruction about the sons of the priests? There's not instruction about the sons of the priests because the sons, if you were a son of a priest, you were automatically called to be a priest, which meant that you would have to follow all of these commands that are given regarding priests. And so uh, on the whole, essentially what God is saying 
is that the priest and his family need to be examples of purity and holiness among the people of Israel. Okay, so here's the thing. We could keep reading through this, and we could go through more details about the priests and what they could do and what they couldn't do. Like this passage, it talks about the high priest and that he had actually like an additional level of special commands that things he was supposed to avoid and things that he could not do. This passage talks about how priests, any priest needed to be free from a physical defect, much like uh, the animals that were brought for sacrifice had to be free from physical defect. And how the priest who uh, disobeys these commands, that he doesn't just profane himself, and that he doesn't just profane God's name, but that he also profanes the sanctuary that he works in, the place where he works, that, that he profanes God's house if he disobeys these commands. Right? He profanes God's holy things if he disobeys these commands. Right, so if you wanted to like, go further in this passage, you could feel free to read all of that. But for our purposes this morning, going into those details isn't going to be especially helpful for us. It's better for us to look at the principle that God is reinforcing here and see what instruction that principle bears. So I just want to pull us back for a second and ask a question. What things are specially holy in Israel? Well, we already talked about God's name, right? How it's kind of the only thing that ever entered into history that itself uh, had not already been defiled, right? So, so there's God's name, but there are other things. If you look at the word profane, the word profane is used only in relation to these things. It's not, it's not used in relation to anything else. It's used in relation to things that God has claimed for himself. So yes, God's name, but then remember God gave a command and say, said, one day out of every seven, I am claiming for myself. And you know what you're not going to do? You're not going to make that day like every other day. You are not going to do any work on that day, but you are going to rest on that day. And that day is a day that will be holy unto me. Right? That's the Sabbath day, the, the day that he set apart for Israel. The day that, by the way, the rest of Israel was going to consistently come back to in terms of their worship of him. They were going to orient themselves around worship of God. If they, if they were going to make a sacrifice, most of them would probably choose this day to do it because of the place that it held in their calendar and the holiness that it was set apart unto God for. God says uh, he claims holy things, so parts of the sanctuary, the place like the holy things, they were used specifically to perpetually reflect God's presence. So there was a lampstand inside the sanctuary. That lampstand always had to stay lit. It was always meant to reflect that God's presence continues to be there. Right? There was a, a, an altar of incense in the sanctuary. That, that altar of incense had incense always going up before the Lord. It was meant to reflect that the prayers of God's people are going up before him. And he had said, these things are holy to me. They, by the way, had to go through their own process of having blood sprinkled on them so that they could be set apart. Right? The holy place, God's house, this is the place where the sacrifices are carried out. The place where prayers are offered up. The place where the priests mediate between God and his people. The place where God himself says, I am going to put my presence there. 
in that place. That's where I live. The, and then you have God's priests, right? The ones who commune with God, the ones who facilitate meeting of God and his people, the ones who carry out sacrifices for atonement. And all of it is oriented around the tabernacle, the house, this place that God has chosen to dwell in. And so the message about all of this is to say to God's people, don't take what is holy and make it common. Don't take what I have elevated into that plane and pull it down into normal human experience. Okay, so what does that have to do with us? Right? We're, uh, we don't do sacrifices. We don't go to a tabernacle, right? We, we sometimes talk about this place as being God's house, but I just want to like make it very clear to you. God does not specially dwell here, right? God dwells in, in the gathering of his people, right? He dwells among us. There's nothing special about this building other than it is a tool that God has blessed us with to be able to use. And so um, we don't have holy things, right? In the, in the old sense of the word, at least, like, we don't have a lampstand. We light a candle here as a symbol, but there's nothing special about that candle. Like, it, it, it's not specially set apart in any way that God has designated it for a special purpose, right? So, so those kind of patterns of things being specially set apart to God, that's not a pattern that, that carries over to today. But this is what does happen. Because of Christ... When we trust Jesus, those holy things become our living reality. When we trust Jesus, those holy things become our living reality. So every holy thing that God gives his people a warning against profaning, that God sets apart for worship in, of him, every single holy thing that you look at in the Old Testament that God sets apart, in various places in the New Testament, you could find every one of those holy things describing the life of those who trust in Jesus. Right, so you see this laced throughout the New Testament, right? You could look at the lampstand and recognize that Jesus being our light and giving light to us is referring us back to the lampstand. Right, you could look at... God's holy day or uh, the day of rest, the day when people were no longer to work. And I would probably take you to Hebrews 3 and 4 and show you how the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Right? I take you to the altar of incense. Right? And look at uh, another place in the New Testament where the Bible says that we are the aroma of Christ to God. I Look at God's house, right? And now because of what Jesus did, it says that um, like God's house doesn't dwell in one place. Like God's house is in people. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit if you believe in Jesus. So what happened? Like how did we go from looking at one place and spe setting apart special holy things in that one place and and move now to this idea that it's about people. Well, when we believed, when we trusted Jesus, God attached his name to us. And then God has 
by his word, set apart Jesus as Messiah, as Savior of the world, right? God, from even before, like the moment sin entered the world, God, with his word, started saying, I am going to set apart a Savior who will come and bring salvation to the world. So with his word, he set apart Jesus so that we who believe in him might be a recipient of the process that he walked through. Because by a process of Jesus following God's commands, spilling his blood for our sins, we have now been washed in his blood, and we have been lifted from the plane of the common into the plane of the holy. So Hebrews 10 verse 11 says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So here the author is looking back to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and telling us those priests who were kind of lifted into that holy category because of what God did, uh, that the job that they did, their holiness itself, it was a fleeting thing because they were sinners, right? And so, so the job that they did, it was a shadow and it pointed forward to something else because you know what? Sinners cannot overcome the power of sin. They can't do it. It's impossible. And so they repeated their sacrifices time and time again. But verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Christ did what no priest was able to do, right? He was sinless. He was God in the flesh. He died as the sacrifice for our sins. He followed God's process, and he did what no other priest had ever been able to do. He took away our sins, past, present, and future. So verse 14, for by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So this is the core, this is the core of what the author is saying. He's saying, if you believe in Jesus, he has made you perfect. Like, he's essentially saying, you're not just like the holy things, you're better than they are. Because those sacrifices couldn't take away sin, but Jesus' sacrifice can To the extent that while you were still a sinner, Christ changed your status from sinner to perfect. Right? That's the power of the blood of Jesus. You are being sanctified, which means that you're not perfect in your actions. But Jesus has already altered your status objectively to make you perfect before God. But just like the holy things, just like the things that he set apart in the Old Covenant, he did not lift your status up for nothing. He has lifted you up and called you holy for a purpose. 
Right? If God's making something holy, he's making it holy for a purpose. That's what we talked about. And so 1 Peter 2.9, this is the purpose. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here's the purpose for which he has called you holy. And in fact, given all of you who believe in him the title of priest that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So your holy purpose then is to show others the otherworldly character of your Savior. It is a gift to have your status lifted from common into holy, but it is not for nothing. He has called you holy for a reason, so that you can show others what he is like. That's what you exist for, so that other people might be able to look and say there is something about that God that is different from all the other gods. So what? Christian, you have an otherworldly purpose. Refuse to make it common. So I remember a time in my life where I treated the things that I've talked to you this morning, I treated them as boring and normal, right? I knew that I should read the word in order to better grasp God's character, but it quickly dropped to the bottom of a list of other important things. I knew my sinful behavior uh, kind of poorly reflected on what I said I believed, but my sin appeared to be a lot more fun to me. And I knew God was forgiving me in my moments of remorse. And so I continued on. Right? I had all sorts of excuses at the time, right? One of those being, well, I'm not a pastor, so my behavior doesn't need to be pristine, right? I can't say that now, but you all care. (laughs) I say things like, nobody else is getting hurt. So I might as well enjoy myself, right? Or, you know, that, that standard of holiness that God is calling me to, that'll be important for a later time in my life, but this time is for me right now. So let's just make something clear. If you think holiness is boring, it's because you think sin seems safe. If you think holiness is boring, it's because you think sin seems safe. If you're disengaged from God or, or coming to church is a way to appease him so that you can keep doing your own thing, right? or consistently engaging in things that he has told you is sin, right? you have believed that those things are safe. When in reality, you're actually opening the door to something vicious. That will eventually rear its head in your relationships or in your workplace or in your finances or in your family or in your mental and emotional well-being or in the form of an addiction that you're a slave to. But here's the thing. If you have truly trusted in Jesus, your status before God as holy has not changed. It is the same 
as it was the moment that you believed. He has attached his name to you and made it so that you could not profane yourself before him even while you were profaning his name and profaning the gospel and profaning the church. And the sin debt that you have been racking up, he has been consistently paying with his blood because he loves you that much. And all of that is to say that right now there is not one thing standing between you and deciding today to throw off your sin and pursue holiness. There's not one thing standing between you and that. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So now, if you're hearing this this morning, and you're saying, I want to start pursuing that more intentionally, but I have no idea how to start. Right, that's what you're saying. If you're hearing me say these things and you're like, I want to start pursuing, but I don't know how, then sometime before you leave, this is what I want you to do. I either want you to, uh, to grab a business card and reach out to me, or I want you to take a Connect card and I want you to fill it out and I want you to write help in the box at the bottom and fold it up and stick it in the box at the back of the sanctuary. I want you to do something to make sure that you have an opportunity for somebody to follow up with you and help you get connected to someone who can help you take next steps for what you know you have to pursue, but you don't know quite how to start. Okay, so what, number two? We now have the privilege to point to Christ in all that we do. So because of Christ's blood, it's not things that are holy, but it's people that are holy. So in the Old Covenant, the holy things were used for worshiping God. And they were uh, used in a way that uniquely revealed God's character. Under the New Covenant, the holy people have the same purpose. But here's the thing. That purpose is not now just relegated to one part of my life where I go to one singular place. It, It extends to everything that I do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? The blood of Jesus is powerful to redeem every single part of our lives. There is nothing that is off limits from his redemptive power. As his priests, we are invited to consider every single action that we might take and how Christ can be glorified in those things, in everything that we do. How we can use our words and actions to tell a story about who God is. About a Jesus who loves us. About a Jesus who bore sin for us. And spilled blood for us. And rose from the dead and sent Holy Spirit to live in us. So that we could show the world that there is a Savior who also wants to to redeem the parts of their lives as well. So church, whether you eat or drink, or speak, or work, 
or write or watch or scroll or listen or pray or rest or whatever you do. Consider it all to be otherworldly to the glory of God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, in particular, I am recognizing the need for your Holy Spirit to continue to work. Continue to work that we may see as amazing and wonderful things that we so easily take for granted. That we may recognize for you, for the awesomeness that you have, that you have revealed to us. Lord, that we would recognize the extent of your grace towards us. Lord, because you, we have been forgiven a massive debt. A debt that we had no hope of repaying. And sometimes we think that our debt was not that much. Sometimes we think that our sin was actually quite small and that was, it was pretty easy for you to take care of that. Lord, but, but when we see that, we don't see with your perspective. Lord, your grace has been lavished on us. So Holy Spirit, help us to recognize these things with a gratefulness and a thankfulness in our heart that we might be those who would reveal to others the otherworldly character of the name that you have attached to us. Your otherworldly character is set apart from every other thing. Thank you, Jesus, for this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.